Okay, everyone, so here we go. This is the uh, Metta Sutta. So uh, I will try to chant this and then we'll see what happens as we go along here. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chris. And uh, so, uh, welcome everyone. And it's always nice to start off with a Metta Sutta to give us a bit of inspiration. Uh, one of the things about doing this kind of chanting is really, it is like a recollection of the Dhamma itself. Yeah? When you chant these words, you'll remember what the Dhamma is about. Uh, you feel inspired because the words are actually very beautiful. Uh, if you look at that Metta Sutta, it is much more than just Metta. It's kind of a whole course yeah, in its own right. Uh, you have everything about being 
frugal and you know right speech and upright and all of these things are part of this particular little sutta so it's a very kind of comprehensive course almost in dhamma practice so it's a very beautiful thing and of course if we want to practice the metta fully if you really want to have a sense of friendliness and call it love if you like for everyone in the world well then you have to really purify yourself in a very deep and profound way so these are inspiring words and allow yourself to be inspired because when you are inspired by these words it actually leads naturally to meditation practice yeah it is about kind of guiding the mind setting your mind in the right framework in the right kind of outlook and as the mind is in the right frame and outlook it actually enables meditation to happen so it's always a nice start but reflect on the words as you as you chant them allow them to sink in allow them to be meaningful not just words but something that we actually reflect on Ajahn Brahm told a story I'm not sure if he told me personally now whether he said it to the Sangha but he said that uh, sometimes when he chants these words, and this was a story from a long time ago, uh, there's another chant that we used to do, which is also about the idea of metta, of kindness and these things. Uh, and he said that while he was doing this chanting, uh, yeah, because of the inspiration of the words, uh, he became so peaceful, so blissful, uh, that he wasn't able to chant anymore. Uh, yeah? It's like a recollection of the Dhamma, just recollection of the words. Uh, and if you use them in this way, in the right way, they take you right into samadhi, right into deep meditation straight away, because they banish all the bad qualities. So these things can be very useful if we know how to use them in the right way. And so when we start our meditation, it is often useful to, uh, uh, to uh, inspire ourselves in this way. It is very often very important as we start out to know the quality of your mind and sometimes the mind is not in a very good state maybe you had a difficult day or you are upset about something or you are tired because of all the activities you know and uh, or you might maybe there is some strong desires in the mind a kind of restlessness that comes with desires whatever it is and uh, all of these things are important to kind of overcome before we start out on meditation because otherwise, if we don't overcome these things, if we don't deal with them at the beginning, we tend often to suppress them, to kind of push them out without really dealing with them. And then when we try to watch the breath or we try to be in the present or whatever, instead of actually being able to do that, we have these underlying things that are always there, blocking us from going deeper in our meditation. So always start out by dealing with the problems, first of all, making the mind, putting the mind into a positive kind of framework yeah so the metta sutta is one way of doing that other ways of doing that is just to reflect in the right way about people and all of these kind of things yeah forgiving letting go um, forgetting about the past etc uh, etc et and knowing that now we're doing something positive that will enable uh, we're kind of building up the future right now in a positive way so let go of the past uh, and let's build up the future instead here uh, so this is a very important starting point uh, on the meditation. Uh, and then once that starting point is in place, uh, you have kind of, uh, your mind is at least neutral, it is not in a kind of negative state in any way, uh, then uh, comes the time to gradually let go, yeah, and letting go in meditation. Uh, and the basic idea of letting go when we start out 
is really just to relax, yeah? just learning to relax properly. Yeah? Because if there is tightness, if you're not really relaxed, it is a sign that the mind is holding on to something. Yeah? The tightness of the body comes from the tightness of the mind. Yeah? You are pushing yourself too much, you're stressing out too much, and so you can feel that tension in the body. Yeah? And so the body is a good way of monitoring your mind. You can know your mind through the feelings of the body to a large extent. Yeah? So learning to relax is really the beginning of letting go. Yeah? The process of letting go has so many layers to it, so many degrees to it, but it starts with the idea of really, really relaxing. So allow yourself to relax. Don't think that by pushing yourself, by forcing yourself to be awake, or by using willpower, somehow that will work. Usually that doesn't really work. The way it works, if you want to be mindful, if you want to be awake, is a combination of relaxation and being positive about the experience. Because positive energy, a positive feeling is always energizing. Energy and positive feelings always come together. So we let go. Yeah? And if we feel that that tires the mind, okay, be tired for a while. Allow the mind to rest a little bit. Nod off a little bit. Right? If you nod off a little bit, if you don't want anyone to see, just turn off your screen and you'll be fine. Yeah? So just kind of think, get the kind of the right sort of approach to this. You don't have to feel embarrassed or anything. There's nothing to be embarrassed about, but sometimes people get embarrassed anyway. You know what it's like. Yeah? And so you just relax. Yeah? And then gradually as you relax, as you let go, then <clears throat> the mindfulness then gradually will come up instead. Yeah? And initially you may be tired. Initially, there may be a bit of restlessness there, but as you stand back and as you kind of observe everything, you're actually gradually letting go more and you're allowing mindfulness to rise as a consequence. You don't have to do very much. In fact, the less we do, usually the better. And then things gradually will come about. Now, to, again, to encourage the mindfulness, it is very important to enjoy what we are doing. Yeah, it really matters enormously. So we start off by overcoming the bad qualities. We chant the metta sutta a little bit to get inspired in the right way. Uh, then we can do all sorts of kind of positive contemplations. A very simple contemplation that I like to do is simply to rejoice of being around good people. Yeah? People who have the right attitude. People who want to do something good with their life. And what a wonderful thing it is to have a Kalyana mittas like that. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm not suggesting that we are all perfect. That's not really the point. The point is that we want to do the right thing. And that idea of wanting to do the right thing is worthy of so much respect. What a wonderful thing it is to have people in our lives who want to do the right thing. And anyone in this world who, want, even if they are a terrible person, if they want to change, they want to go in the right way, they are worthy of respect for that. And so in a community like this, whether it's in the monastery or whether it's just a Zoom meeting like we're having now, everyone, yeah, everyone here who comes here has the right attitude, the right idea. What a beautiful thing that is. People have the right attitude. It is worthy of celebrating. And then gradually, when we have the right attitude, gradually we come out of those problems that we may have in life. And so this way of a kind of dealing with the mind very gently, very gently will allow gradually the mindfulness to, to arise. And you don't have to watch the breath at all because 
Watching the breath is actually quite often a fairly advanced kind of practice. And if we watch the breath at the wrong time, it doesn't really work. Make sure that you do all of these preliminary things, which is just awareness, mindfulness, enjoying what you're doing. These are the things that are the foundation of everything. And from that, eventually, the kind of the more refined aspects of meditation will come from that, such as watching the breath or you know, doing metta meditation more profoundly and all of these kind of things. And then everything comes from that. So uh, anyway, so that is just a little bit of uh, introduction for you just to get the practice going. So let's do some meditation together and see what happens. All right, everyone. So, as I was just saying before, just uh, start out by, well, start out by being comfortable, first of all, and just getting yourself into a nice posture. Uh, the idea is to get the body out of the way, so it's important to be nice and comfortable. Uh, and uh, then, once you are nice and comfortable, spend a bit of time just feeling what things are like. Yeah, how, do you, how are you feeling right now? Uh, what is happening in your mind? What is happening in your body? Kind of ground yourself a little bit uh, to get a sense of what is uh, going on with you. Uh. And then, as you get a feeling for yourself, you will notice whether the mind is in the right space or not. And if there are any issues that are bothering you or are problematic or that make the meditation difficult, then deal with those issues first of all. Let go of the past, forgive what needs to be forgiven. Don't worry about the future. The future comes too quickly anyway. And usually it is boring, unexciting and uninteresting. Now is when you're doing what is truly exciting. This is the journey of your life. This is where life really happens in meditation, in peace, in stillness, in bliss, in insight. Now you are on the path that really matters. 
So leave all of those other things alone. Uh, this is the important thing. Yeah. And then you can also feel your body and you will notice if you have any tensions anywhere, any tightness, any problems in the body. And you can usually take that to mean that you're not, you haven't really let go as fully as you would like. You would like to relax a little bit more, to allow things to be a little bit more. And very often all it takes is a little bit of time. You can take some deep breaths to kind of allow yourself to relax or you can send some kind thoughts to the parts of the body that are not relaxing properly. But very often just give yourself time to sit back, just observe, just allow things to be. Don't control things but just enjoy the here and now without doing anything at all.
And uh, the idea here is just to observe and not to get stuck in things, uh, to stand back as if you are standing back from the world and it's allowing things to arise and pass away on the screen of the mind. Uh, but you are separated from it. Uh, usually we identify a bit with the happenings of the world, uh, but now instead try to identify with the observer, uh, identify with the awareness. Uh, everything else is just an object, uh, everything else is just something happening. Uh, and as you stand back in this way, you're detaching a little bit from the happenings in your life, in your mind, in the world, whatever comes through your senses. Uh, you become an observer, uh, you become someone who is, uh, rather than someone who does. Uh, and then gradually, 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 uh, as you observe in this way, uh, you will notice that things just gradually die down in a beautiful way. Uh.
And uh, as you uh, start to calm down and you get a bit of distance to what is happening around you, uh, sometimes you need to give yourself a little bit of a boost uh, by just nudging the mind very gently in the right way, uh, by reminding yourself of the good company that you're in, uh, what a wonderful thing it is to have such Kalyanamittas on the path, uh, a group of good people coming together to do something wonderful. Uh, what a beautiful thing it is that these things exist in the world uh, and rejoice in that uh, and rejoice that our life can be given so much meaning, uh, so much purpose by all the beauty uh, of so many good people uh, around us. Uh.
Okay, so uh, coming close to the end, uh, and uh, as always, I recommend you just to take a few moments just to review the meditation as we come out. Uh, and when you review it, ask yourself how the meditation works, uh, what are the perceptions that work, that give rise to peace, give rise to good qualities, uh, what does it mean to let go? Uh, and trying to understand the meditation in this way to then to give you more freedom to uh, do this on your own in the future. So uh, let us do some uh, little bit of dhamma sharing. Uh, I'll just uh, talk for maybe I don't know how long. We'll see what happens, and then we can do some Q and A or whatever towards the end. Uh, so uh, first of all, nice to see you all. Nice to see many familiar faces. Uh, great to see people coming back again. So that's that's wonderful. Uh, so uh, what I uh, was thinking of talking about today was. Uh, uh, the idea of Buddhist ethics, uh, you can call it sila if you like. Uh, uh, sila is a very broad kind of term, which kind of means ethics or morality or conduct in general, all of these kind of things. Uh, and it's a very, very important foundational thing for the Buddhist path. Uh, and in fact, it is so important that I think that if we just focus on ethics in our Buddhist life, uh, then if we really do it properly, if we do it fully, uh, and everything else tends to fall into place as a matter of course uh, from that ethics. Uh, that is how important it is. Uh, if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, if you uh, look at the, uh, the factors there, almost everything that comes before meditation practice, uh, meditation practice is factor number seven, it's the Sammasati, the right mindfulness. Uh, everything before that is really about ethics and conduct and how to live well. Uh, so I want to uh, talk a little bit about that and I want to specifically compare the idea of, Buddha, of Buddhist ethics uh, to what you might call secular ethics, to understand a little bit about the difference. Uh, at least that's where I want to start and then I'll see, see how we go as we go along. Uh, so uh, I'll give you an idea of a kind of modern secular ethics and one of the uh, kind of principles, uh, ethical principles that is kind of used a little bit in the modern world uh, is uh, something you may have seen. Uh, you know, sometimes these things come up in the news or whatever. Uh, and this is something called um, effective altruism. Uh, it's a kind of idea of if we're going to do something good, if we're going to be kind to the world, if we're going to uh, do donations to some kind of good cause or whatever, uh, an altruistic deed, uh, we want to do it effectively. That's kind of the idea. We want the recipient to gain the maximum benefit uh, from our generosity, from our kindness. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of um, famous people who uh, 
uh, kind of are in the field of ethics who are promoting this particular idea. And one of those famous people is an Australian ethicist called, uh, uh, called uh, what's his name again now? It escapes me at the moment, uh, but he's a very, very well-known ethicist and he, he's actually at Princeton University in the US, but he is Australian by origin. Uh, uh, and he advocates for this kind of uh, ethics. And so the idea is then how can we maximize uh, our donation so that it actually gives maximum benefit at the other end. Uh, uh, and there are organizations apparently who uh, specialize in this uh, and they will tell you how to give so that you know, people get the most benefit. Uh, uh, give to this country because this country your dollars will go further. Uh, these kind of people give them education or whatever that will kind of help them in the future and all of these kind of things. Uh, and so the question is, how does this idea of effective altruism, Peter Singer, Peter Singer is his name, by the way, some of you may know about Peter Singer, a very famous Australian ethicist. He wrote a book called Animal Liberation back in the late 1970s and was very kind of ahead of most other people in this regard. Anyway, so effective altruism, what are we to make of this thing from a Buddhist perspective? Is it right to think like this? How can we maximize our donations to reach as many people as possible? And I would say, of course, there is some truth to that. Yeah, of course, you want your money to go to something positive where it's going to make a difference. You don't want to give your money to some kind of dodgy character who's going to abuse it or use it in a bad way. That doesn't make any sense at all. Of course, we want to have a rough idea that our uh, charity, our charitable donations, uh, will have an effect uh, wherever it is that they go. Uh. So there is some truth to that, uh, but uh, there's also some limitation to this idea. And this is where we start to see how Buddhist ethics is quite different from other ethics. Uh. And the problem is that it is possible to be too calculating. Uh. Yeah, too much time using a spreadsheet to kind of figure out how, where, where it is the maximum donation or whatever, it is no longer very spontaneous. It doesn't really come out of the heart in a very kind of natural way. It comes more from a kind of cold calculation of where the maximum benefit is. So it is important to find some kind of middle way here. Yes, we give in a place where it is efficient, but it's important, one of the kind of significant things from a Buddhist point of view is that when we give, it feels good. Yeah, it is an act that comes from a sense of wanting to give, of feeling inspired, feeling compassion towards somebody, feeling that it lifts up your mind. This is a very important part of giving. If it becomes too cold, if it becomes too calculating, then you actually lose some of that beautiful aspect, which is the kind of very, such an important part from the Buddhist point of view. So in Buddhism, when we give, it is not just about the recipient. It is not just about maximizing the benefit of the recipient. It is also about the giver. Yeah, the giver should also get something out of this. So when the giver gets something out of it and the recipient gets out of it, when everyone kind of uh, has some kind of benefit from this, uh, that is when the giving is done in the right way. Uh, and of course that giving then becomes very powerful, right? Because then you can take that into your meditation later on. Uh, you can use it even in daily life, recalling your generosity. And then when eventually we have to die on our deathbed, uh, these are the things we will remember. Yeah? These are the things that come back to us. Uh, and from a Buddhist point of view, there's nothing better 
better than to die with a beautiful feeling in your heart, a feeling that you have lived well and that you have done the right thing. Yeah. So we have to be careful about being too calculating. Yeah. Generosity should come when we feel compassion, when we feel care, when we feel that we're doing something positive. It gives rise to something positive inside her. Yeah. And uh, I was, uh, it reminds me also of uh, another kind of wrong way of giving. And this was uh, when I was in uh, Malaysia a few years ago, because we, tra we travel quite a lot sometimes to kind of give talks here and there and everywhere. And so I go to Malaysia usually once a year. And they told me in Malaysia that, well, in Malaysia, the way we give is that we kind of figure out where there is most kind of effect in the giving. Yeah? So we kind of think, think about, well, who, who is an arahant, yeah? who is kind of spiritually awakened, and who is a stream enter, and who has good samadhi, and who is a kind of good person. Yeah? And then we kind of make a spreadsheet, and we figure out if we give so and so much to the arahant, and so and so much to this person, and we're kind of maximizing our merit yeah, because of that. Yeah? And again, this is the wrong way of giving, yeah? because it's cold. There's no heart in that. There's no kind of emotions coming with it. And that destroys the very purpose, from our point of view, of giving. And so again, forget about who it is that you're giving to. Don't worry so much about whether they are Buddhist or not a Buddhist. Don't worry about whether they are fully enlightened or not. It's something you can never know anyway. Look in your heart. Where do you want to give? Where do you feel inspired? Where do you lean? That is usually the right way to give, according to the Buddhist way of thinking about this. So um, uh, another example I thought of mentioning very briefly, and this is kind of a little bit tricky. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to explain this, or how, if it is explainable really. But this is something that in ethics is called the trolley problem. It's kind of a philosophical problem in ethics that is kind of interesting and kind of interesting to consider. It's a little bit extreme and that's why it is interesting, I suppose. And the trolley problem in ethics is this idea that there is a, a trolley coming on the railroad track, right? It's a steep hill and it's coming down at speed. And then there is a junction in the railroad track. The trolley can either go to the left or to the right according to this junction. And on the right hand side there is five people on that railroad track and they will obviously get killed if that trolley kind of uh, overruns them or whatever. On the other side there is only one person. Now the way that this, uh, uh, this junction works is that now the kind of the lever which decide which way the thing goes, the lever is set to kill those five people. Yeah? So the trolley will go towards the five people. Uh, and then the trolley problem is what do we do as a person? What is, our, uh, what is the right choice in that particular place? Should we pull the lever uh, so that it kills only the one person instead? Uh, or should we just kind of remain and not do anything at all? What is kind of the right attitude in that particular case? So, uh, um, and that is kind of interesting, right? It's kind of because it is an extreme situation. It is a, a kind of situation that normally doesn't happen. No one ever gets in that kind of uh, tricky situation. But it still says something about morality. Huh? So what is the Buddhist answer in that particular case? Should we pull the levers so that the one person gets killed uh, or the and the five persons are saved? Or should we just leave it and let nature take its course and the five people get killed? That is really the question here. And of course, the, uh, the first thing that I would say is that uh, in that kind of situation, uh, it is not really realistic. The world isn't like that. There are always other alternatives. Yeah? 
So if you are in that kind of situation, uh, maybe you would kind of find a big rock or something. You put the rock across the track and that might stop the lever, stop the trolley, yeah, because that's what rocks do. Or maybe you would kind of somehow be able to help those people off the railroad track or, or to do something with them. Or you might be something else you can do. Maybe you can pull the lever halfway so that the, the actual uh, cart coming down uh, jumps off the tracks, right? It kind of uh, goes off the rails or whatever. So this is usually the case in those kind of ethical dilemmas. They usually are alternatives. It is never that black and white. And when you are trapped in that kind of situation, usually because of your compassion, because of you wanting to help out, normally you will find that kind of solution, yeah? An alternative way of doing things. So this is the first thing I would say. But the other thing I would say is that ethics is not like a kind of zero-sum game. Yeah, in many of these situations, very often you will feel something. There will be a powerful feeling. Maybe you will feel very strong compassion for the five people. And you will maybe not even notice the one person so much. And that compassion may then, make, may, may then actually make you pull the lever. And then you kill the one, and the one person gets killed, but not the five. Not because you want to kill the one person, but because it's just natural. Yeah? The compassion makes you do that, pull it the other way. Or it could be that the one person is very dear to you. Maybe you know who they are and maybe you focus on them and there's no way that your compassion stops you from killing that one person. And so you kind of get paralyzed and you don't know what to do and you kind of things just happen as a consequence. So usually in those situations, instead of thinking about this as a logical problem, very often from a Buddhist point of view, we ask ourselves, well, where are we coming from? What is it that drives that action? And if that action is driven by compassion, by kindness or care, then it doesn't matter what you do, whether you pull that lever or not. Either one can be right. But if you are driven by anger, maybe you want to kill that one person, you think, yeah, I'm going to save those five, but actually you want to kill that one person. <laughs> you know what it's like sometimes, yeah? And then, of course, it is a bad thing that is happening. Then it is immoral, so from the Buddhist point of view, there isn't really any right answer. What we have to ask ourselves is where we are coming from in that kind of situation. And then we can actually give rise to a good answer, what will work and what will not work in that kind of situation. So this is the Buddhist idea of morality. This gives an inkling of what is going on. It is more about how it affects us, where we are coming from, and how it affects us as individuals. In Buddhism, morality is not just about the other people, it's also about us. And this is the beautiful thing about Buddhist morality. It affects the person who is doing the action, but also the people who are subject to the action. In other words, everyone benefits if we live, do morality in the right way. And so Buddhist morality at core is based on the idea of the fact that beings have feelings, yeah, all beings have feelings. And because everyone wants to feel good feelings and they want to avoid bad feelings, then if you subject someone to bad feelings, that is immoral. Yeah, this is kind of a natural way of thinking about immoral uh, morality because you are reducing the quality of life of that person. And by reducing the quality of life, that is what badness means. 
If you do the opposite, if you improve or you benefit the quality of life of the other person, then it is moral because you're giving them something they want. Yeah? You're adding quality to the other person's life. And so the basic idea of morality is to add quality to other people's life yeah? through your speech, through your action, and also through your thoughts and minimize the uh, adding of, bad, of, of, of negative feelings, if you like, to the other person. Yeah? So that is the beginning. That is a very sensible and naturalistic approach to the idea of morality, right? This is kind of, it makes a lot of sense. It comes just from using, if you like, the rational mind to decide what is, what is moral and what is not. But there is an additional problem there. That is the problem that sometimes we don't know what is beneficial for others, right? Sometimes we're not sure about that. Uh, for example, where should we give a donation? Should we give it here or should we give it there? It's actually very difficult to know sometimes. Uh, and so then comes this other thing, which is a very important part of Buddhist ethics. Uh, and that is the idea, where are we coming from? Uh, what is driving our conduct at any particular time? Are we coming from good qualities or bad qualities? Uh, yeah? And that becomes then the standard which decides what is the right particular conduct. Uh, so look into your mind, know your heart, know what is driving you, and that will tell you whether you're doing the right thing or not. But it also tells us something more. It tells us that if you want to be a more moral person, if you want to be more kind, yeah, actually the way to do that is to add more compassion, more kindness, more love, more generosity into your acts. Yeah? So whenever you do an act, you add more of these qualities into it because that comes back to the idea of intention again, that it is the intention that defines whether it's moral or not. So if you, when you are speaking to somebody or you're acting or whatever, you add more of these good qualities, that purifies your morality even further. So this is a beautiful way of thinking about the idea of morality and it means that there is almost no limit to how moral you can be, right? It is not black and white. It is not good or bad, as things are often thought about in the secular realm. It is like a gray scale, the gray scale from the darkest actions all up, becoming less and less uh, paler and paler shades of gray until eventually you have the white actions at the other end. That is really the right way of thinking about morality. And our job is really to make our actions as pale, shades of grey as possible, yeah? moving towards the whiteness at the very end until you kind of purify your mind completely. Yeah? And then you have an idea of how morality really is purified on the Buddhist path. This is what we have to do. So not only do we have to do the right thing at all times, we also have to keep on purifying the mind in this way. Then we are taking ethics to the point where it becomes incredibly powerful on the spiritual path. Um, so that is one aspect of this, yeah? and I, many of these things you have probably uh, thought about before, and, and these are kind of standard things in the idea of Buddhist ethics. Uh, but I want to talk about one other thing uh, which I have been talking about recently, uh, and which I think is very important to understand the idea of ethics, not just to understand it, but to maximize our ethical conduct. Uh, 
We all know how difficult it can be sometimes to be ethical at all times, yeah? to be kind at all times. It can be hard. You get very busy, you get stressed out, and before you know it, something has come out of your mouth that wasn't all that kind, or at the very least, you have thought a thought that wasn't all that wonderful or, or full of friendliness or whatever. Yeah, it happens to everyone almost. And uh, so the question then is, how can we stop that? How can we actually become more ethical consistently through our day? Actions, speech, and also through how we think. And very often you will know that one of the ways that people will teach to become more ethical is by being more mindful. Because if you are more mindful, then you can kind of control your actions more, you have more ability to correct your behavior when things go wrong. And so this is a very standard way of doing things. But uh, there is a downside with this, and the problem is that it is impossible really to be mindful all the time. Yeah, very often during daily life, there will be times almost regularly during daily life where we lose our mindfulness, where we forget what we are thinking, where we forget what we're speaking. It happens so, mindfulness is quite a weak thing for most people. We are a little bit mindful, a little bit non-mindful. And so sometimes it is asking too much. If we just rely on mindfulness, we will never really be fully ethical people. We need something else. And this is where it gets very interesting, because there is something else which is far more powerful than mindfulness in ensuring that we, have, we are, live ethical lives. And this one thing is right view. Right view is really the thing, if you get the right view at the very bottom of your actions, of your speech or everything you do, if that becomes very solid, then you do actually become also a very moral person. And one way of thinking about this is that the people who are, you know, purify morality all the way in this world, these are the noble people, the stream enters, whatever, those who have taken the insight into the Buddhist teaching almost all the way, and they are consistently moral. Why is it that they're consistently moral? It's because they have right view. Yeah? The, uh, the simile that is sometimes used in the suttas, or it's only used in one place actually, it is like the cow with the calf. And when the cow has a calf, regardless of what that cow is doing, whether she's grazing or wandering around or, or whatever, she always has one eye on the calf. Yeah, because the bond is very, very strong. She never really lets the calf out of sight. In the same way, if you are a noble person, you never let the sila, the, also the samadhi and the wisdom, but let the sila for the purposes of this talk, you never really let, take your eye off the sila. It is always at the background of your mind. Everything you do, you do in terms of... Uh, every, sila is the most important thing, and everything else you do is secondary. It is kind of... Uh, captured by that sila. The sila is what uh, is the, uh, the root thing that you're always looking to do. That is what really matters. And so our job then is to become more like those stream mentors. Yeah? Having that right view that always allows you to keep morality at the back of your mind at the very least, ready to come out whenever you need it. And a very simple simile that I have been using to make this point of the power of right view. And I think this um, this makes the point quite well. Now, most people in the world, when you come to a road or a street in the city where there's a lot of traffic, yeah, you always look left and right before you cross the road. 
And if you don't look left and right before the crossroad, it means you're crazy. Yeah? Everyone, regardless of how distracted you are, even if you are in the middle of sending a text message or whatever on your phone, you still look left and right. <laughs> Why? Because it is so ingrained in your mind. The view that the street is dangerous is so powerful ingrained that regardless of what you're doing, that right view will always tell you, look left, look right when you come to the street. You don't have it to start in the morning, yeah, when you're kind of starting out in the morning, you think, yeah, okay, today I have to be really mindful so I remember to look left and right. Yeah, if I don't, if I don't try really hard to be mindful, otherwise I might forget to look left and right. You don't have to do that, right? Because you know when you come to the street that you will always look left and right. And so what that means is that the view, once you know that something is dangerous, once that is really deeply seated in your mind, that view will take precedence over everything else. Right view, far more powerful than mindfulness to allow you to do the right thing in a difficult situation. And so this is the idea then. So what we have to do as people who want to practice the Buddhist path, who want to have success with our seal or whatever, the most, one of the most important things we can do is to have the right view of the importance of that morality. Every time we do an act yeah, that is potentially good or bad, we remember to look left and right because we know the importance of this. We think that crossing the street is much more dangerous than doing a bad action, but actually no, it's the other way around. It, doing the action is far more dangerous than crossing the street because crossing the street, okay, you may die, but your long-term happiness and suffering is not really affected by that. But if you do something bad, you do something wrong, you may potentially destroy your long-term suffering, your, your long-term happiness. Yeah, it is far more potential to be destructive of your life now and in the future than dying. Dying is just a part of the process of life. Everything has, everyone has to go, go through that. That is not really, doesn't really have anything to do with your long-term suffering or happiness. And so once we start to understand this, once we start to understand the urgency with this, once we understand the impermanence of life, the uncertainty of how long we're going to live, the uncertainty of how long the community around us is going to be there to support us, the uncertainty of the world around us. When is there going to be the next world war? When is, uh, uh, when is the monastery here? When is Ajahn Brahm going to die? When is the monastery going to burn down? All of these kind of things. There are so many uncertainties. And the more we understand those uncertainties, the unreliability of the world, the more that right view informs us to remind us of the importance of sila now. Now is the time to do the right thing. And when I say now, I really mean now. I mean in this moment. What can I do in this particular moment to purify my virtue, to be more, have better sila? Yeah, because right now we can do something. Right now is, well, how do I look upon these people around me? Do I look upon them with kindly eyes? Do I have a sense of care and compassion for these people? Right now we can make a change in our attitude. Yeah? And this is kind of where that sila, uh, where the sila comes from. If we get this, understand the importance of this, if we understand the danger of impermanence, if we understand that now is the opportunity and that our long-term happiness and suffering, not just in this life but also in future lives, 
The importance of rebirth again comes back again, again and again and again. Yeah? Then that right view starts to have a powerful effect in our lives. Then when you come to a crossroads, you have to choose an act, you have to choose a way to speak, you have to think in a certain way. You, are always, uh, you always have that power, that right view telling you, look left, look right. A car may be coming, it may be dangerous. Let me not do the wrong thing, because your view is clear. So, one other thing I would like to add to this, yeah, because this is about the idea of having right view and kind of understanding the world in the right way. And I've been talking about the idea of impermanence. It's a very important idea, of course. And sometimes we think that we understand impermanence. We think we have an idea of how unreliable and uncertain everything is. But actually the reality is that we don't really understand impermanence anywhere near as deeply as we think we do. Impermanence is actually very profound and very difficult to really grasp. And um, uh, one way of understanding this, and I, this is another thing that I was, I read this, maybe I can't remember now, maybe a couple of months ago, I was reading about this experiment that someone did. And what they pointed out and what they showed was that they asked a group of people to reflect on the past and then kind of look at the past 10 years ago and compare 10 years ago to the present and ask them, can you see the impermanence? Can you see the change in your life? And they said, yes, I can see the change in my life. A yeah, large number of things have happened. I'm a different person now from what I was 10 years ago. I've become better because of these reasons and these things happened to me. And now I have turned into a different kind of person than I was before. And then they said to the same people, well, now look into the future. Yeah? Can you see yourself change in the future? And the interesting thing was that people were not able to see change in the future. When they looked into the future, they saw a slightly different version of themselves with basically the same qualities they have now, maybe becoming a little bit better because they were practicing you know, kindness or whatever, but essentially being the same kind of person that they are now. And so what they proved by this is people's inability to see change, see uncertainty in the future. It's only when we look into the past that we can see these things. But our sense of self, our sense of identity, our sense of kind of having a kind of permanent aspects to our, who we are as human beings stops us from being able to see that uncertainty in the future. And that is very, very fascinating, because what that means is that there is a lot of scope for us to reflect on this, to remind ourselves of this uncertainty, to remind ourselves that tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We have no idea. One day we're going to die. We have no idea when it's going to be. And of course, that is where the idea of death contemplation also comes in, reminding us of these kind of uncertainties and impermanences in our life. So this is where a lot of the work is to be done. I have given talks before on the idea of developing perceptions. And these are the sort of perceptions that underlie right view. Yeah? The perceptions of unreliability, of impermanence, of death, of non-self, of things kind of always changing. And as that right view comes into place, then the sense of urgency of every action, every speech, every thought we have actually mattering, that starts to come into place as well. And then our virtue, then our sila, will really take off as a consequence. All right. 
everyone. So there you are. It's a little uh, talk from me. So uh, uh, now I would like to give you all a chance to ask questions. So uh, yeah, please fire away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We have one question in the chat. Would you like me to read it for you? Why not? Yeah. Just to get the ball rolling. Uh, I would like to ask Ajahn, when we begin to learn the Dharma and uh, of impermanence, we gradually lose interest with the world, knowing that uh, loved, uh, relationships with loved ones will end, and thus it can get a bit sad, because on the other hand, we still haven't found the joy in meditation yeah. or in this path. What should we do at this particular phase in which we find ourselves not having found motivation. Yeah, so, yeah, so this, is a, this is a good point, and uh, it is important to find that balance in the spiritual path. Yeah? On the one hand, you contemplate the world as it is, uh, uh, to let go a little bit of the world. On the other hand, you do all of those good things uh, that creates joy on the path. And when you get that balance right, it becomes almost like perfect. Yeah? Because on the one hand, letting go, on the other hand, developing the joy. Yeah? So be careful not to contemplate too much on the negative side. Yeah? If we always focus on the impermanence of the world and the unreliability, but we haven't got the other side, then quite right, as you say, then it can get depressing. Yeah, oh, so many wars, so many things happening, and so much terrible stuff happening. Yeah? But actually, the reality is that, uh, you know, if you... This is what I find so interesting, is that uh, if you think about the spiritual path in the right way, this is precisely the release from all the problems in the world. Uh, because by practicing the spiritual path, by being kind, by being generous, by being compassionate, uh, actually that is where you build your future. You create your future through practicing the spiritual path. Uh, and you become less dependent on what happens in the world. Actually, whether the world, you know, you know, <laughs> whatever, goes to the dogs or whatever, it actually it's not so important to you anymore because your future is secured through your spiritual practice. And this is a beautiful way of overcoming all the despair and all the depression and all the sadness that people often have in the world because we start to understand that actually the future is created in an entirely different way from what we used to, used to think. It is not created so much by what happens outside, it is created by what happens inside of us. So just remember that, yeah, and use that to encourage you to practice in the right way. What you do now, how you live now, the kindness that you have now, the generosity that you have now, that is what determines your future. That is what will uh, you know, enable both in this life, but certainly in future lives, and not so much what happens in the world. And then you start to get some power and force in your uh, spiritual practice. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. Would anybody like to unmute and ask a question now? Uh, Prasindu, would you like to unmute? Dear Ajahn, my question is about uh, Samadhi Vasana meditation. Mm -hmm. We want to know, Ajahn, is it possible to do Vipassana meditation alone without Samadhi meditation? What is your opinion about that? I would like to know your opinion. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, 
all meditation that is good meditation it is both samatha and vipassana. I, to my mind, there isn't really any difference between the two. Huh? Because samatha and vipassana, what, what are they? Well, they are really qualities of the mind. The Buddha never talks about samatha meditation or vipassana meditation. Buddha talks about two qualities of mind. One quality is called samatha, the other quality is called vipassana. And samatha means peace, samatha means tranquility, it means calm. And vipassana really means clear seeing. I don't, I don't really like the word insight so much. I think it's, it's, it's uh, putting too much into the idea of vipassana, but clear seeing I would call it. And so whatever meditation you do that gives rise to calm and clear seeing, that is the right kind of meditation. And so if you do anapanasati, Anapanasati is not vipassana or samatha. Anapanasati is both vipassana and samatha. And that is why anapanasati is said by the Buddha to take you all the way to the end of the path. Yeah? Anapanasati is the mindfulness of breathing, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the terminology. Yeah? And so you, all you have to do is to do mindfulness of breathing. Yeah? And by doing mindfulness of breathing, you are fulfilling the four satipatthana. The four satipatthanas, the mindfulness meditations, yeah? These are often called vipassana in the world, but they are not really vipassana either. They are also both samatha and vipassana. They bring both things together. So these things always grow together in Buddhism, yeah, in the meditation practice. And the reason is very simple, because when you are calm, you will see more clearly. And if you see more clearly, seeing clearly leads to letting go, and that makes you calm. So the two are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate samatha and vipassana. What you can do sometimes, you can do slightly different practices. For example, you can do anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and then you can do contemplations. Yeah, I was just talking about right view right now, about the idea of perceptions and perceiving the world in the right way. And so we can do these kind of contemplations. And those kind of contemplations, you can call them vipassana if you like, but they too lead to both clear seeing and they lead to calm. If you think about impermanence in the right way, if you think about death in the right way, death contemplation can make you very peaceful because there's nothing to hold on to in the world. So you can call death contemplation, you can call it vipassana, you can call it wisdom, you can call it perception, you can give it almost any name, but the result is the same. It leads to samatha, calm and clear seeing. So all of these things are just different ways of uh, giving rise to both of these things on the path. Uh, so that, that's what I would be looking for. Yeah? So just ask yourself, what did the Buddha teach? Uh, follow that, uh, and then I think you're okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, John. And I have another question in the chat. Would you like me to read it? Okay, if you don't mind, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. Uh, what can you do if you have a person who you love very much in your life who is very egocentric and thinks that the most important part is to think about themselves to ensure that they are happy, particularly if the person ends up hurting other people and you by being very egocentric? Yeah. Okay, so I, I think that um, the, uh, you know, the, the thing is that... Uh, a little bit of insight should tell you that you become, if you really want to be egocentric, it's better not to be so egocentric. Yeah? Yeah? Because if you really want to be happy, if you really want to look after yourself, egocentrism is not going to lead to real happiness. 
And uh, I think, uh, it, it, you know, and there are lots of studies, I think, in the world that show that if you are compassionate, if you look after others, that actually leads to a much more profound and satisfying kind of happiness than the happiness that comes from looking after yourself all the time. Looking after yourself is a really very shallow kind of happiness. It doesn't really lead to anything profoundly deep and beautiful. Huh? So maybe what you can do is just point out some of these things and point out that all the ancient wisdom traditions, they make it very clear that uh, looking after others uh, and looking after yourself through looking after others uh, is far more satisfying and a far more profound sense of happiness uh, than the thing that you get from looking after yourself. If you look after yourself all the time, then... Uh, Sometimes you end up becoming scared. You become concerned about the world around you because you, your little world is me. I'm looking after myself. And other people become potential enemies. They become potential people who can steal from you, take from you. Yeah? You become very concerned about your belongings. You become very concerned about your life, about your status, about all of these kind of things. And so you lock yourself into your own little world. And the more we lock ourselves into our own small little world the more scared and frightened and anxious we become. But if you open your heart to everyone around you and you, you, you bring everyone in regardless of who they are, that fear, that, that anxiety of other people actually tends to evaporate. And that is a far more wholesome, far more beautiful mind state than the small mind state of being egocentric. So I think there is a, you know, there is a, studies in the world to help with these kind of things and uh, I think a little bit of common sense if this person is intelligent or whatever you can probably uh, you know point them in the right direction by saying listen darling you know actually there is this very interesting research and this kind of interesting spiritual ideas that tell us something about a more profound kind of happiness and maybe you can guide them in the in the right direction but uh, don't have your hopes too high because sometimes people are very stubborn about their bad ideas. So sometimes you just have to kind of go with the flow and, and see what happens. But uh, some, somewhere in there, I think the, uh, the answer may lie somewhere like that. Yeah. Thank you, Rajan. Is there anyone else who would like to unmute and take the opportunity to ask a question? You'd be very welcome to. Ah, Rocky, would you like to unmute and ask the question, please, Rocky? Yes, I did. Uh, I was, when we try to act out of, come from, when we try to, when we're coming from mindfulness and we're acting out of mindfulness, it is sometimes very challenging to turn around from our habits because our habits, it is like, as you say, the turning the water tank, it is very big and it is hard to turn that water tank. Mm. So it is challenging to identify ourselves yeah. from uh, from the mindfulness that because we are identifying generally identifying ourselves from the habits that are ingrained in our minds. Yeah. So I to know your. Uh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. I I think this is a very important point. You know that. Uh, uh, the most, one of the most difficult things to do on the spiritual path is uh, to change because our habits are so strong 
And uh, I think you were alluding to the supertanker. I sometimes talk about the supertanker on the ocean. And we have a momentum that is very, very strong. And uh, the supertanker takes a long time to turn around because they are very heavy. They have a lot of momentum and all these kind of things. Uh, and so sometimes mindfulness is not enough. Yeah? Mindfulness is not strong enough because the habits just come back, they come back, they come back. And as soon as we drop the guard, then the, the habit is there again. And this is why sometimes we need to use right view. Yeah? The right view is so, so important. And so the Buddha gives us all of these beautiful tools to change our mind and to look at people in a new way, to look at the world in a new way. You know, the most destructive of all habits is the habit of anger. Very, very destructive in our lives. And so you learn that the reason why you become angry is because you are looking at other people in a way that is conducive to anger. That way of looking at people leads to anger. You look at people as your enemy. You look at people as being opposed to you. You look at people as, uh, uh, you know, somehow there's a clash there between two people. But instead, you, then you learn to look at people as conditioned. You learn to look at people as not really having any choice in their conduct. You learn to remember that they are the ones who suffer most from their bad conduct. Yeah? And you think about people in an entirely new way. And so when someone treats you in a bad way, instead of getting angry, you feel compassion for them. Because you realize they are trapped in their conduct. They are trapped in the way they are. And in this way, Sim very simple things. This is a, these are incredibly powerful teachings, but also very simple teachings. Uh, you can actually overcome some of those uh, uh, very ingrained habits. Uh, and you will be surprised. This is something anyone can do. Yeah? It is not that difficult to do. It just takes that commitment. It takes the perseverance. Uh, reflecting on these things again and again and again. Having the confidence, having the faith in the Buddha's teachings that these things actually work. Uh, and then... Uh, in the end, you will actually find that you are a different person as a consequence. Thank you, Rafi. Uh, Ajahn, uh, it's been a most interesting evening this evening. We've had over 54 people in this evening, which is uh, a few more than usual. Uh, we've had people in from Perth and other parts of Australia, Laos, America, Indonesia, Thailand, Minneapolis, Sweden, Poland, Cornwall, USA, uh, in general, Hong Kong, Bangkok, France, Maine, Sri Lanka, Florida, Singapore, Malaysia. Wow. Most of all, Inuit, Circumpolar, which are made up of the Inuit people in Alaska, Canada, <laughs> Greenland, and Chukola in Russia. Wow. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Wow. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, so it's such a wonderful thing to have such an international community. So very w wonderful to see you all and to, uh, that's, uh, that's marvelous. So I'm very happy we can reach so many people in this way. Yeah. So <laughs> okay. It is, it yeah. is a joy for all of us, uh, Ajahn. So thank you very much for great. coming and joining us. Yeah. Let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Shall we do that at the, at the end? Yeah. So I'll just do that. Yeah. <clears throat> Arahang Samma Sambuddho Bhagava Buddhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami 
Sepati Pano Bhagavato Savakasango Sanghang Namami. Okay, everyone. <laughs> bye bye. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Ajahn. Very good. Okay. Yeah, we'll see you. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye bye bye. All right. Very nice group of people, actually.